welcome to Shop Talk Live, Fine Woodworking Magazine's bi-weekly podcast. I'm Fine Woodworking Editor Tom McKenna, and joining me today are Executive Art Director Mike Pekovich. Hey, guys. And Special Projects Editor Asa Christiana. Hey, what's up? <laughs> well, this is our first podcast since Ed Gabriel Pernick has left us. How are you hanging in there so far? Um, I'm doing great so far, except for the frog in my throat. Um, Tom's had a cold for about three days, and it, this is his maiden voyage as figures, the host. It figures. <laughs> um, I'm going to try to follow Ed's recipe for success as best as I can. So uh, the first thing I want to do is remind all of our listeners to spread the word about Shop Talk Live. You can drop by our iTunes page and leave a comment and be kind enough to prop us up with a generous star rating. Um, remember, you can also find us at iHeartRadio. And uh, we'll start off with, with sort of some bad news for, for the magazine. Asa Christiana is uh, hitting the road at the end of the month, October 28th, heading out to Oregon. What's Dude, up with that? really? What's up? <laughs> yeah, these guys, let's not pretend like you all don't know, but... Yeah, uh, it's something that we've been working toward for a really long time. The, the timing with Ed leaving at the same time is not great, but uh, mine has been in the works a long time um, since I stepped down as editor. Uh, we just wanted a new adventure in our life, and we're doing it. And uh, I would say that I was re I've really been inspired these last 15 years. Mike and I have talked about this a lot, where we meet all these uh, woodworkers out there who have dropped everything to kind of follow their passion. And mm -hmm. meanwhile, we're visiting them with a salary and a day job and um, benefits and health benefits. And these guys are out there just, just figuring it out as they go. And I always thought I could never do that. I need more security than that. But I kind of got my courage up over the last couple of years and we're moving out to Portland, which is a city that's always been at the top of my list after visiting that's another thing. You get to visit yeah. so many cities here. So. Right. Now, you put that yeah. in very poetic terms, but yeah. really yeah. probably what it comes down <laughs> to is you finally have a spouse with a good paycheck in Benny's, yeah. which is <laughs> the making of any good woodworker. It's true. That's true. No, actually, she walked away from a career at the state in order to become an x-ray tech, and, and which is a job that's more portable. So, right. um, yeah, and hopefully she will get Benny's <laughs> because I'll be – out there in the Pacific Northwest, doing a lot like what I do here, um, except yep. doing it as a freelancer. And so, you know, trying to shine a light on all the amazing woodworkers out there. Cool. Without the bennies. With, without <laughs> the bennies and without the steady salary. And just, it's a big adventure. And, uh, but my time here has been amazing. 15 years. Well, one of the things that I had <clears throat> recently sent out a note to the company about Asa leaving and um, talking about all the things that he's done here, you know, not only was he the chief editor, but once he stepped down as special projects editor, um, people don't realize, I think, the volume of work that he cranked out on a high level. And um, thanks, man. As a as a boss, it's a, a pleasure to have someone like that, where you just kind of ask him to do something and it gets done, and it's done pretty much perfectly. So thanks, man. That was kind of. You know, as as Tom knows, his job can be kind of stressful, and I sort of wanted to get back to the thing I love to do most, and maybe the thing that I think I'm best at versus managing people was just sort of working with authors and working on the articles themselves, and it's been a blast. It's been a great two years, and I hope to continue to do that. Well, it, it's more stressful when people leave, so I want to thank you for that. <laughs> well, I want you to so. earn your money, you know <laughs> what I mean? You can't just cruise along in a job. you got to earn that money, but... 
I, right. I wanted to make an announcement. I'm leaving as well. <laughs> yeah, you're going I'm nowhere. <laughs> <laughs> Mike's leaving to go have lunch, and then he'll be back. <laughs> I'm not going anywhere. I'm, I'm going to be here. That's good to Doors hear. Doors closed, lights are off. I'm still going to be sitting here. Awesome. All right. Well, let's uh, let's stop with the blathering and, and move on to the first question. Um, this one is specifically for Mike. Jim huh. McCarthy of Peoria, Arizona writes, I am assembling my first frame and panel door for my kitchen cabinet, <clears throat> kitchen cabinet makeover. And I have a question about your technique you suggested in the September-October 2007 issue. The title of that article was Frame and Panel Doors Made Easy. You suggested putting glue in the style grooves only, but I'm concerned that if I do that, the glue will squeeze out all over my finished panel. I'm using three-quarter inch MDF core plywood and Freud Premier adjustable OG bit model 99761. The hmm. fit between the plywood and the groove is nice and snug. Can I get away with just applying glue to the stub tenon end of the rails? I've cut my panel about a sixteenth of an inch shy to allow for expansion. If I put glue in the style groove, would you recommend just a small amount carefully squeezed into the groove? I plan on finishing the panel and frame before gluing. What do you think, Mike? All right. Well, what Jim is talking about is uh, making frame and panel doors with the, um, the little Copen stick router bit set, which means you got little short little stub tenons, which aren't going to give you a lot of glue surface there. So um, the doors I made, I used, they were painted, so I had MDF panels. And uh, in this case, Jim has plywood. In either case, I take advantage of the fact that that plywood isn't going to move seasonally. You really don't have to leave any room for expansion. And because of that, you can glue those in place. And basically, yeah, I mean, pretty much every factory-made kitchen door is cope and stick glued just to the corners. So you can make an argument that that's, that's plenty strong. Um, I, being a woodworker, uh, you know, like that little extra with young kids at the time, you know, I like that extra benefit of being able to glue the panel in place. And then it becomes just like a bomb-proof, rock-solid panel. And definitely just put some glue just along the groove, you know, the full length of the groove. That's going to glue the panel in. Top to bottom, it's also going to glue in your little stub tenons. And the idea of getting the glue just in the groove, you're not going to have any squeeze-out. All the glue is going to get shoved down to the bottom of the joint anyway. The last thing I want on this joint would be squeeze-out of any kind. So I would yeah. go ahead and um, pre-finish your panel, but just maybe tape off the ends. Uh, so you have some good glue-to-glue -glue surface there. And um, I don't see any reason not to throw a little glue in there. I'm glad you have a nice snug fit because that's going to help things mm -hmm. out um, a little bit. So, And yeah. your doors are still intact, right? Yeah, still hanging in there. They need a paint job after about 9 or 10 years. Yeah. but they're Yeah, the general rule we've always said in the past is, and a lot of our authors have followed on, have agreed with this, is if you have cope and stick, just those short little stubby tenons, right. Um, uh, you, that, uh, that on its own is a lot to ask, especially if the doors kind of get big over a lot of years, if you have a panel that's trying, you're trying to float like a floating panel in there, right? especially like a raised panel, which would be even he heavier than a thin piece of plywood. Yeah. And that's definitely going to move. So you right. can't be gluing that guy in. No. So in that case, we sort of recommend having a full tenon in, yeah. in, uh, in those kind of doors. And then if you're going to use cope and stick bits, find a way to use an MDF or plywood panel that you can glue in. So this guy's heading right down the right road. Yep. Yep. And Mike has proven it. You know, it's rare that we get a chance to talk about, you know, how things hold up over time. But here it is, you know, and it's what, 10, 
you know, almost nine years. Yeah, my entire time. house is filled with furniture that are, in essence, long-term experiments. <laughs> so, I mean, when I do a commission, I tend to overbuild because I want the thing to be bomb-proof. But when I tend to make things myself, I, I probably tend to underbuild, mm-hmm. like just enough to hold it together. And then if it stays together for 20 years, uh, okay, that's, that's a good way to put things together. Awesome. All right. Well, let's move on to a fun segment, um, Favorite Tools of the Week. And I guess maybe we'll start with Mike since he's probably the most prepared out of us all. I am. I'm the only one that came with visuals today. It's actually our favorite tool of all time for this week. Oh, okay. I take that back. See, rookie mistake. So uh, my favorite tool of all time of the week is, is nothing new. I think I probably have mentioned it in the past. I know uh, you guys have brought this up on occasion, and it is the humble block plane. Um, why it happens to be my favorite tool of all time for this week is because I am once again dipping my toes into the wonderful world of Kumiko, which is the decorative lattice work that you typically see on shoji screens. Uh, in Japanese architecture, I've been incorporating that into my furniture, and my recent piece has a, um, an example of it, and I am holding up for the camera sort of a halfway completed uh, sample grid work where basically it consists of, of an overlapping grid creating a bunch of squares, and then each square is outfitted with little matchstick-sized pieces of wood, and every single one of those pieces has to be cut to the exact length and be beveled to the exact angle uh, at a variety of bevels depending on the, the where the piece fits in the construction. So the way I tackled both of those things, getting the angle exactly right and also getting them cut exactly to the right length, is I made up some little, little shooting boards, basically long pieces of wood with some slots cut in the top that the little pieces fit into and the ends of these boards are cut at the specific angle and this is where the block plane comes in Uh, i can set my little pieces in place and i just shimmy the end grain of the parts with the block plane to get the angle just right so those are adjustable stops yep so you have adjustable stops brilliant Brilliant. The idea is if you get your grid work really consistent, yeah. then all your pieces are exactly the same. Right, and, and you can it, crank out the... Yeah. One thing, you know, amazing. since uh, we do have some listeners who, who may not have the visual, yes. the Kamiko panel sort of re- resembles what <clears throat> a complex roof framing would look like on the flat, where you mm-hmm. have a bunch of angles, angled beams kind of coming together. Um, it's yes. really very cool looking. Yeah. It's actually a, a stylized flower, isn't it, Mike? Uh, this, is that uh, true, or is that like... It oh. is. There's different um, There's different patterns. Right. This particular pattern is a hemp leaf. Uh-huh. And <laughs> cool. Which Dude. is awesome. Okay. There's also different patterns, um, which are uh, sort of stylized cherry blossoms and other flowers and that sort of thing. This happens to be one of the, the simpler configurations because it's based on a square grid. A lot of really cool designs are based on triangular grids, and that's my next step is, is to sort of figure that thing out. But um, So, yeah, so then the block plane. My block plane out of all my hand planes is probably the plane I sharpen least often and use most often because mm-hmm. whenever you're knocking off corners or chamfers or that kind of stuff, it doesn't have to be that sharp. Mm-hmm. But on this kind of stuff, to do that little end grain just right, took the time, resharpened my block plane, got it really sharp, set for a really thin cut. And it's like, oh, this works really well. This is a nice tool. Yeah. So. 
One of, one, the, oh, sorry. Um, one of the things, uh, when I first started uh, taking hand tool courses, I took a, a class with Phil Lowe, and um, when I broke out my block plane to do some work, he uh, kind of sauntered over and he leaned over my shoulder and said, uh, hey, that's a carpenter's tool. And I thought, <laughs> what? <laughs> but I love my block plane. I use it all the time, too. I was just going to say that. I was really um, happy to see that Mike was adding Kumiko you know, to his style, I think one of the, of work, cause Mike's got a real furniture style that's emerging, which is like a thing that can happen. If you design for long enough, you can start to really see a style coalesce in your work. And, uh, I hope that happens for me. I'm still all over the map, but Mike's really zeroing in on kind of, uh, arts and crafts meets Asian. I don't want to speak for him, but, um, and it's kind of beautifully simple. And, um, one thing, but the rather than characterizing Mike's work, I think my point is that uh, people can turn to other cultures to really look for ways to make take their work in new directions. Um, yeah. Because if you stay in the American European tradition, you end up circling around the same mm -hmm. patterns and things people have done. But if you go to like Asian, Middle Eastern, just these other places, um, it can even happen in arts and crafts. Let's say you're really focused on American arts and crafts, and all of a sudden you discover English arts and crafts, you know, and sure. it's this whole other thing. But uh, Asia has been the source of inspiration for a lot of furniture makers from green and green. Oh, I mean, it's where the ball and claw foot comes from. Aha, uh -huh, right. So, yeah, and also, I think also if you're woodworking long enough and you kind of get the basics down, you're looking for a little bit of a challenge, seems like people will go in different directions, whether it's curves, whether it's veneering, whether it's bent lamination or carving or inlay, stringing and beading. It seems like there's always that one extra thing people are looking for as a challenge. And for me, uh, this sort of thing happens to be it for me right now. It's just yeah. that extra little thing that you can add to your work and yeah. it adds just that little extra bling to it. Well, you move from getting the basics and the fundamentals to adding cool details yeah and but does it fit with what you do and that's like because some styles clash but what you've found and i hope maybe in this podcast you can show a piece or two but how these actually integrate into your work it's a beautiful marriage and that's the harder thing to find sometimes yeah. well let's move on to right. uh you asa what's your favorite well, since, tool of all time of the week since i'm in the mode since all my tools are packed up in a pod and they're <laughs> in in uh, transit um to oregon um i'm in the mode of and i'm also in the kind of bittersweet mostly sad mode of looking back and leaving and and tying off loose ends and thinking about my time here which has been the best job of my life and one that i don't know if i'll ever equal again in my life in terms of fulfillment I'm thinking back on authors and tools I've encountered here. And in my second year working here, I, I met a guy called John Nesset, yeah. who was uh, a butcher by day and <laughs> I think still is, and uh, but worked on his porch just determined to do work. He had read uh, Krenoff's book and gotten inspired in the sort of late 70s, early 80s or something and uh, just never looked back. And he, for the magazine, was making it, Japanese again, uh, a little um, marking gauge, I think called it kabiki maybe, uh, but it's just a little Japanese marking gauge that's where the arm is held in place with a wedge, right. and it's got a really big uh, fence 
bearing surface, a lot of trouble with small marking gauges is the fence is really small, right. and so it can sort of wiggle on you. But yeah. this had a you know the Japanese have refined their uh, trade over that, you know hundreds and hundreds of years, so their marking gauges this marking gauge was phenomenal and. He not only made one all by hand for the article, and you guys can find that uh, if you look up Nesset, N-E-S-S-E-T, and Marking Gauge, but um, he also made one for me as a gift cool. and put wow. his little initials cool. in it, and I still use that Marking Gauge. It's phenomenal, and it has a knife, which you want in yep. your Marking Gauge, not mm -hmm. a point, which just scores and scratches the wood. It has a little knife. The knife is angled away just a little bit, so it pulls the fence against the workpiece. I mean, it's just... Perfect. Yeah, so that I think back. And this week, just in terms of tying up loose ends, I found a photo I shot of John's hands making or using that from the photo shoot. And our guys here in the image department were nice enough to print that out on like archival oh, cool. paper. And I rolled it up and put it in a tube and sent it to John. As, oh, cool. That's just awesome. kind of a thing. Very nice. That's what's one of the, the cool things about our job is. You know, the generosity of our authors is always amazing. You know, amazing. When, when they make things, often they'll give us gifts, you know, as just a, a thank you for spending time with them. And it's sort of like, well, you're working for me, but you wind up with this cool token, you know. Um, I know Garrett Hack has made chopsticks for folks, and, um, you know, Tim Coleman has given me a couple things here and there. And it's a really, uh, it's a cool aspect of working with these these pros, and it's really a kind of a testament to their willingness to share not only knowledge but also you know just generosity yeah totally um moving on to me my favorite all-time tool of the week is a, a skew chisel which uh, i learned how to make again it's it's sort of what ace is talking about I, I did an article with garrett hack on making a skew chisel and basically went up to his shop and <clears throat> watched him create one from scratch and um i finally had a a, a spare half inch chisel at my own house that uh, wasn't doing anything, so I decided to convert it into a skew chisel. Cool. It was very cool. It was my first attempt at really altering a tool to do something different than what it was designed for. Right. So, you know, it's basically blunting the, the tip and then kind of freehanding the bevel and, and freehanding the sharpening. It was really cool. And as I get more into dovetailing and handwork, that skew chisel has really um, been a great tool for oh, me. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So you started just by grinding the, the tip at a 90 degrees yep. at that skew that you want. That's yep. the trick. Yes, yes. That is the trick because if, if everyone can picture you're grinding a chisel, let's say you're trying to change the whole angle of the tip of the chisel. Right. If you kept grinding at that, the most vulnerable place of a chisel when you're grinding is the super thin, thin tip, tip yeah. the very thin, because it can't... Uh, distribute the heat it can't get rid of the heat and so it all builds up there in that thin metal and that's where you can ruin the temper yeah, I learned so, that the hard way probably. yeah the very first thing you do like mike said is just blunt it off at the new angle but yep. do it at 90 degrees to the wheel yep and then once you get it to you know the whole thing angled but bluntly then you can re-grind it at 25 degrees right, or whatever it is right. and it was kind of cool i mean it wasn't an exact science because it's not really a finishing tool so I used a lot of uh, Sharpie marks, and, and I just kind of did a lot of it by eye, and yeah. it's worked out great. It's awesome. So. I did the same thing. After I read your article with Garrett, I went home and grabbed a chisel I wasn't using and made a skew chisel. Everyone kind of needs one to get into corners. There's just so many times where oh, yeah. a 90-degree yeah. chisel doesn't get in there. Yeah. yeah. And kind of freaked out my wife when she saw all the sparks when she had to be doing laundry, <laughs> but uh, I, I assured her everything was fine. Um, all right, let's move on. Uh, 
Let's get back to some questions, but uh, this one is not actually a question per se, but it's a, a good heads up from Lane and Laura Sheridan. Um, they write, hey guys, I just thought I would pass along these pictures of my new PMV11 blade in my Lee Nielsen number four. It is the blade meant as a replacement for Stanley planes, and it works perfectly. I made no adjustments to the blade or the plane to make it fit other than moving the frog forward. The PMV11 steel is remarkable. I'm loving it. I haven't tried it in my other Lee Nielsen planes yet, but I will be. Thanks. And they have a little PS. I just got the PMV11 bench chisel set, and wow. Now, I didn't realize that Lee Valley was selling these individual replacement blades, um, so I'm hoping that we'll get our tool guy, Matt Kenny, to, to call the guys at Lee Valley and get us a couple. I know Tom Lee Nielsen. I know Lee Nielsen's going to be psyched that people are trading out his blades and putting in Lee Valley blades. But hey, whatever works for you. Yeah, for years I had a hawk iron in my uh, Lee Nielsen number four, and I felt it was sacrilegious to have that in there. And then when... Um, Lee Nielsen came out with the A2 blades. I switched back to a Lee Nielsen blade just for to keep the planets in alignment. But and you like that that blade, right? Yes, yeah. yes. A2. I for a while had trouble getting it as sharp as I thought I could get a carbon steel blade, but I've kind of altered my sharpening techniques a little bit. And the A2 just lasts a lot longer. What do you than do the to sharpen steel. the A2 versus your old Hawk carbon steel? Uh, the main thing is I use a little ruler trick on the back of the plane iron, so oh. you're honing just to, you're not having to flatten. Mm -hmm that entire back of that A2 steel, which really takes a while to get flat. Right. Um, and the, the thing about the PMV11, uh, I haven't used it personally, but the people who've looked at it and used it said that it, um, it holds an edge as long as the A2 blades, but it's a little bit easier to get sharp. Oh. Yeah, I have, um, I have the chisels, That's the PMV11. Okay. And um, I don't actually have that much experience with A2 blades, so I don't have a kind of a firm reference point, but... I love these things. They're they're actually easier to sharpen than I thought they would be. Okay. And they, they have held their edges really long. Cool. It's funny, when I was up there on one of my really fun things I got to do for the magazine was to go see how tools are made at Veritas. They told me about some of their things have just been happenstance. So, like, they have the back of the... I'll get to the PMV11, but they have the back of these saws they make. They're able to make really affordably because they make, like, a one-piece molded back. Mm -hmm. And it's a combination sort of resin, plasticky stuff impregnated with metal. And they found that material, instead of doing the normal folded brass back, and they found that material um, by someone, a company rep, wandering in and saying, hey, uh, we have this material for sale. We think your engineers could use it in tooling. And, um, and they were like, they just had the material first and started thinking, and it led to these saws, which are really affordable and have gotten really good ratings. But... On the PMV-11, that was another one. I don't know how they ran across it, but it came from aircraft. It's mostly used for aircraft landing gear hmm. because it's so indestructible, and that obviously has to be a piece of metal that yeah. doesn't and, break. And it needs to be really sharp. <laughs> it needs to be really sharp. But just the So it came from that. It's actually powdered. That's what uh, PMV, I think it's powdered metal powdered or something. Metal, yeah. And um, they... It's this crazy technique where they atomize it into the air, like into a dust, into a microscopic dust. And then while it's still semi-molten, it gets packed together. So it's still somewhat of a packed together powder, but it's linked as a metal would be. 
And that makes it consistent. Like there's no grain in it like there would be normal metal mm. in normal metal. Um, but it's also crazy indestructible. So they thought, the engineers again thought, well, and that's what I love about their lab, their invention lab up there. They just thought, let's give this a try mm -hmm. for blades, you know, if it's so tough and indestructible. And it's turned out to be a hit for them, this PMV 11 stuff. It's a little pricey, but... It's really cool stuff. Yeah, and maybe maybe you don't want to go change out your Lee Nielsen blade, but if you have an old Stanley, an old Stanley or something yeah. you're you're rehabbing, I would probably think about throwing a PMV 11 blade in there next time I get around to it. And price wise, it's about the same as a Is replacement um, yeah. 01 or A2 steel blade. So yeah. why not give it a try? Yeah, well, and if you're the editor and you're making like huge bucks, like time, you can just get a whole set of chisels from the stuff. Hey, hey, easy. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Enough. Uh, let's move on to uh, our next segment. Um, our 40th anniversary issue is on the newsstands and should be in your home by now if you're a subscriber. Um, but I think it looks great, and I think it's one of our best issues ever. Now, inside that issue, we have an article that essentially surveys some of the most influential authors and teachers on what they consider their most influential articles. Um, it's a great sampling of classic art articles. Excuse me. Um, but let's talk about what our faves are. So, um, what do you uh, what are your thoughts, Mike, on that? Um, well, aside from your own articles, yeah, really, no bylines. <laughs> I wasn't. It was so <laughs> far from the top of my list. Um, <clears throat> although I couldn't narrow it down to just one. Uh, a couple few come to mind. One was a series of articles that Will Neptune did for us on engineering various forms of furniture. So rather than breaking down, you know, telling you how to make a piece in a way, he would address things like a table with a drawer or a sideboard or a chest of drawers and give you really sound construction methods, but a variety of construction methods for everything from how to build the base, make the case, uh, fit the drawers, uh, add moldings to pieces, and they really become kind of an encyclopedia on how to build furniture. And it's one of those things where a lot of times we'll put out an issue and realistically, you could buy this issue and really read nothing else for a year or a couple years and sort of follow it, all the information in this issue and you'll have plenty of stuff to chew on. I think Will's uh, collection of articles are basically, you know, you really need to keep buying our magazine and subscribing to our website. But, but really, if you got Will's articles and read just those guys, you're probably not doing too bad. Well, if you want to talk about like what we mentioned before, before we got into the Kamiko panels, one of the things that Will's articles does is it gives you the fundamentals of, of those constructions. And it's funny because when I first started at Fine Woodworking, I was the copy editor. And uh, the editor at the time who hired me was Tim Schreiner, and he said, here, look at these two articles, and this is going to give you the background you need to be able to copy edit all, all these things you're going to be coming. That's, oh. All these articles are going to be coming across your desk in terms of terminology, construction techniques, and things like that. So at that time, in 1998, it was those two articles were sort of my Bible. Yeah. And speaking of, of the Kumiko, the other um, thing I wanted to bring up is uh, John Reed Fox was on a back cover a while back, and he had a, a nice case piece with some Kumiko door panels. And then we did a How They Did It um, 
focusing just on that Kumiko, and that was sort of my main inspiration in wanting to do it and the main information I had in, in trying it. But more than that, um, accompanying the back cover, John Benson, who edits the back cover, he almost always does a little audio slideshow with the author on the back cover, and it shows more of their work, and it... it um, it really gets to the heart of why these people make furniture. And those things are tremendously inspiring. I'm always looking forward to after the issue comes out, I'm always waiting for John's slideshow to show up on our website. And, and even though it's not technically a part of our issue, it's one of my most favorite parts of the magazine is just really listening to the authors in their own words, speak to sort of not just the how they do something, but the why. Like, you know, sort of why, why are they woodworking and almost always the why of what they're doing dovetails precisely into what they're making and how their, their work looks. Mm -hmm. So, and, and it's funny and talking about that integration of online versus print, it's not to blow our own horns too much, but it's one of the things that I think that we've been really successful at. Um, and I think, going back, you know, to Ace's Farewell, it's something that he really kind of embraced and helped push for us to do is the integration of both print and web. And if you're a member, you, you get a really nice package where you, you get a great article, then, hey, there's more if you go on online and you can get some more details. Yeah, I always looked at the web. It's funny, senior management at the company was sort of freaked out a little bit in a way by digital, like, oh, these print dinosaur editors will they be able to handle the digital world, man? And it, for us, it was just like kind of a goofy debate because this we're all users of tools. And as teachers, which is what we are here, and, and people who are trying to inspire people, these are just different tools to get you to the same end and amazing new tools. And why anyone would ever hesitate to embrace video or the web or blogs or events or... Just in our podcast is nuts. I mean, they're obviously they all have their strengths and weaknesses, and they're good at different things. But um, the web is has been amazing in terms of video, in terms of giving people access to the archive of articles and fifty five other things. Um, it's been kind of crazy. But speaking of uh, Will Neptune, I worked on that article. One of the articles Mike's talking about the chest of drawers article, yeah. and. Will, if anyone's ever edited Will, he gave me like 10,000 words when I needed 2,000. I'm not kidding. I mean, it was like five times as much text as we needed because Will knows way too much. Yeah. Yes. So one of the things we do, not to take you too far behind the curtain, is, and we do this for authors also, they're scared to see all that text get winnowed down to 2,000. It's scary for them, but... We use photos and illustrations and some of the illustrate, you know, in order to say some of the things that you don't have to say in words that are better said in other ways, speaking sure. of other tools. And one of the things we did in there is we took, he built this amazing generic chest of drawers with different tops and different bases and different drawers. And we exploded it with pieces of clear plastic. Instead of doing an exploded drawing, we did an exploded photograph. I don't know if you remember that. Yeah, Mike. yeah. And like when you say we, you mean... I did that. Yes, you did. Sorry. I had I made this this complex armature out of actually it's like plywood stands and all these little arms and brackets that came out. Yeah. And I suspended this entire piece of furniture exploded in space 
and photographed it. And then we just whited out the background. So when you look at that article and you see all these little bits and pieces, that's not Photoshop. That's like a picture of those parts, actually. Yeah. And that, that probably said 5,000 of Will's words yeah. right there, you know, that and, I was able and to. And what's, what's really amazing about that that <clears throat> prop is that we still have it. Yeah. And we take it to shows, yeah, events. It's in a crate in our shop. And it's just dry fitted. Yeah. It's really kind of cool to see. And so, speaking of favorite articles, since I'm heading out the door, and they can't really do anything to me now, you know, in terms of uh, firing or whatever, because, you know, I'm kind of out of here. I'll give everyone a nice little secret that builds on Mike. Keep it clean. I <laughs> will. That, that builds on what Mike said. There was an SIP. Those are the special issues, newsstand issues we did. Um, there was actually a whole series. But the one that I would point out is called Building Furniture. Yeah. And you can still buy it on our website, I believe, directly. If you bought that one volume... <laughs> yeah, that's it. You're done. Yeah, you're kind of <laughs> done. But there's also one on it, like it on finishing. There's one like it on design. Really, you put these things together, and I hope we do this in the future, and you'd have a textbook for woodworking that really you could just digest that for a couple of years, like Mike was saying. Yeah. Well, my, my um, it's funny, my most influential article, uh, at least at this point in my life, um, was one of my first articles as an associate editor. I went up to Garrett Hack's shop to shoot a project. Uh, the, the article was called The Versatile Hunt Board, and it was in uh, issue 187. I'll hold it up to the camera. Um, and it's influential in the way that I had been building stuff for years, but I never really paid too much attention to proportion. You know, I, I kind of felt like I had an eye for it, but I was always building heavy. Mm. You know, I was making things overly fat. And as I worked with Garrett on this fairly monstrous piece, I, he was making parts that were so thin and delicate, and yet they were supporting such a large case. And it was really eye-opening in terms of realizing that, hey, wood is really strong, and it can sustain a lot of weight. Um, so I learned a lot just in terms of the design and, and keeping parts looking thin. And so that was sort of been an inspiring point in my woodworking where I realized hey, I didn't have to make two-inch fat legs for a, a, a little uh, end table. Yeah, and that cover, it's actually, it's a really pretty cover. It's a sun-drenched photo of Garrett Hack assembling this really nice sideboard. Tom, you shot that. I was there art directing that and it wasn't until after the fact that I noticed that Garrett he snuck in this little itty bitty miniature thumb plane in the yes. in the foreground on his bench and it's like oh darn it so I almost cloned it out and it's like you got me you, you snuck it in there so it stayed in there he and, loves that little thing yeah and Mike Dunbar would always try to sneak a, a rubber chicken uh, in the background of his photos when we shot with him as well so I was always on the lookout for the rubber chicken well that's funny you know kind of getting it back to I don't want to dwell too much on the magazine production again but one of the things you learn early on as a an editor and photographer is pay attention to the background yeah because you never oh know what a guy's gonna have on the wall behind him or what he's wearing um, I remember I came back from um, a trip to Salt Lake City, and it, I was shooting this article in the summertime, and the author, Chris Gochner, was wearing shorts in his vans, and the article was appearing in one of our winter issues, and Mike <laughs> kind of, not sternly, but recommended that I don't let authors wear shorts during photo shoots anymore. So. Woodworkers <laughs> have some of the most pasty white legs out there, you know, especially in, yeah. In Utah. Yeah. 
Um, all right, let's move on. Um, let's, let's move on to another letter. This one is from David Pyrie. I think that's how it's pronounced. Um, esteemed gents. That's pretty formal. Um, I'm a frequent listener to the pod, and I've learned much from the straightforward and practical advice that you offer on the wide range of woodworking <coughs> subjects that you cover. My question, though, is very much impractical and is more philosophical than technical. Is there an este- ethical, aesthetic, environmental argument to be made for limiting one's lumber selection to what might be termed local wood species? Maybe not indigenous, but readily harvested, available near home. In the San Francisco Bay Area where I live, this would mean that I might use woods that I'd not consider normally, like almond, bay laurel, black oak, or eucalyptus. That might be interesting and cool, right? Why do you think American culture in general is so regional, but woodworking culture seems somewhat more homogenous? Or maybe this kind of look of woodworking is just a sub-sub-subculture that I haven't discovered yet. Locovore, as opposed to omnivore. And I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly. I don't even know what it means, frankly. Local. David brings up an awesome question. It's sort of the the local nature of the craft, which I think is, I think there's actually a a very long history of that local aspect of of crafts. I was just um, speaking with Bob Van Dyke uh, up in Windsor, the Windsor Historic Society this weekend had a grand reopening of their strong Howard house, this old house in which um, they had refurbished the house and they did reproductions of all the furniture original to the house. And um, Bob Van Dyke was talking about how you could identify uh, pieces of furniture made in New England basically by what they were made out of in that, you know, Connecticut had a lot of cherry. Um, I think it said... Uh, Boston, Philadelphia, because they were near ports um, and they could get mahogany, they'd make it out of mahogany. And regionally, you'd see a lot of walnut and other areas. Um, Gustav Stickley spoke very emphatically uh, in the arts and crafts movement how not just furniture, but even homes should be built from materials that were acquired locally, whether it was um, stone that was quarried locally or timber that was harvested locally. This notion of where you at and where you're at, you know, should fit with what you make. And I, th- I think it's a really neat concept. It, it probably, we got away from that when, you know, you're from California, you want to make an arts and crafts piece, you get some quarter sawn white oak. And I was in California, no trees grow in California. So mm-hmm. all my wood came from other places. So whether I was working in mahogany or oak or maple, it was all kind of the same because it came yeah. from the lumberyard. Yeah. Moving to Connecticut, and I've got ash and oak and, and walnut and maple in my backyard. All of a sudden, it's like, oh. This is where it all came from. So it's kind of, yeah, it's one thing to live in New England and say, yes, you should build with local woods because we've got sort of a yeah. treasure trove here as opposed to being in Texas. And it's just like, well. There, are, there are a lot of guys in the West that uh, use their local woods, though, depending on where you live, yeah. who use, I know in the Northwest, you know, they use Claro from Northern California, Claro Walnut, and they use uh, alder, like for a softwood, they use fir a lot, because there's a ton of fir out there. And those are amazing woods. It's funny with design sometimes, sometimes by narrowing the parameters of design, it opens up when like everything's available to you. It's almost, you get paralyzed. Whereas if you're just told, Hey, try using local woods and, and Mike's right. This is absolutely not anything new. And it's something that a lot of authors have talked about 
Hank Gilpin talked about it in a couple of his articles. Sure. He really focuses on using local woods for both for philosophical reasons and um, also monetary reasons. Yeah. yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah. that's why why I feel like you need to import or ship in stuff from a long time a long place a long way away when you have so many especially anyone you know midwest out to the east down to the eastern seaboard so many local woods yeah. and there's southern guys who use cypress and different stuff like that so um yeah there's amazing things you can do with your own local woods and it there's something philosophical i think um david here is onto something where it ties you to your region and your local area in kind of a beautiful way when you've taken what grows in the forest and bring it into the home, that there's something there for sure. We're we're lucky where we live in the Northeast. I mean, there's an abundance of different woods, you know, in this area. And, you know, just going to a a local lumber dealer, you can get, you know, any number of Northeast woods and even some specialty woods. But I haven't done any local harvesting per se. What, what I've started to do, and it's kind of interesting, I've, I've, I've been begun pulling things from my firewood rack and making oh, yeah. boxes out of it or, or cabinet backs or door panels. And um, in our one of our recent issues, we have an article where Michael Cullen is making these really cool bandsawn boxes. So I, I pulled a bunch of uh, um, white birch um, logs from my firewood pile, and I'm going to make some bandsawn boxes out of it. Cool. So it's kind of a cool take that... You know, there are some gems in your firewood pile. Remember that, people. Yeah. Yeah, I think the newer variation on that is working with recycled or reclaimed lumber, whether it's old barn boards or, you know, um, recycled, you know, boards from flooring in factories, beams in factories in Brooklyn and and whatever. So it's sort of like, yeah, find it, you know, find it where you are and and make something out of it. And um, I, I like that. I like that notion where, you know, it's like if I'm traveling, and I want a beer, I try to look for a local brew. Nice. Not on the company expense, though. Never. All right. <laughs> we almost had a moment of silence there for beer, which was really nice. Yeah, I, yeah, I know. We all got sort of distracted, and our yeah, eyes we glazed over. Microbrew. Like, oh, frothy cold one. Yes. All right, let's move on before we uh, get to the frosty cold one. Um, last letter is uh, from Jamie Womack, and he's from North Carolina. I'm a part-time woodworker. And as I'm part of an amazing community of crafters. Most of my woodworking friends do custom furniture work part-time, but work in or have cabinet shops for steady cash. One of the ways we help each other is with shop maintenance, schlepping in the new jointer and setting up the blades, etc. I've come to realize the enormous body of knowledge needed to create a good shop and to keep it running well. And I can see how this would be a huge barrier to entry for people without this support system. Accordingly, my friends and I have entered upon a lark of a venture, called CustomShopSetup.com. We'll, we will travel to someone's <clears> location and help with as much or as little of the shop setup as they need. And it's, you know, aside from his venture, and I'm sure it's probably a local thing, um, I went to their website, it's a pretty, pretty rudimentary site, but um, it's a really nifty idea. And, and someone like me who's an amateur, frankly, I've always been intimidated by setting up machines or doing sure. any kind of tune-up because I'm afraid I'm going to mess it up. Yeah, machine work, working on machines is just a foreign craft and pursuit to woodworking. It's not super connected. So, right. I mean, Taunton's done some great um, work on those articles yep. by, you know, Raleigh Johnson and John White. There's two names, Roland Johnson and Roland. John White. 
Uh, you could look those up on our web search and find great articles about machine maintenance, tune-up, setup, so that. But it is really intimidating. There's yeah. just a buttload to have to know about woodworking in order to woodwork. I want to make this. Okay, get some machinery. What do I get? Oh, I have to wire up my shop. Okay, yeah. where does it go? Okay, your blades have to be sharp. Oh, your joiner beds, by the way, they need to be coplanar. Uh, what? What? Yeah. And your, you know, outfeed rollers on your planer need to be adjusted so you don't get snipe. What? Well, even, you know, Mike had mentioned before when we were talking about this, Why this segment. Um, <laughs> just the idea of getting a delivery. You know, you have to know to ask for a truck with, uh, what do they call that? A, a lift, lift gate, gate service. Mm-hmm. You know, and yeah, just when I was uh, first bought my first equipment from the local, uh, you know, machine place uh, and had it delivered. I was in college. I had a joiner, planer, bandsaw delivered uh, to my parents' garage at the time. And this truck pulls up in the suburban neighborhood. He goes, where's your forklift? It's like, where's your forklift? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, really. So the two of us hoisted all this machinery off of this lift gate about three feet off the ground and sort of tumbled everything out onto the ground. And it's just like, really? This is... It's a residential neighborhood yeah. that you're delivering to. But this is what it takes just to like want to cut a dovetail or something? Right. You know, one of the deep secrets of, of Raleigh Johnson and his tool reviews is that Raleigh has a forklift. <laughs> <laughs> so we never reveal that, but we never... It's funny, we never talk about how to take a delivery of a big tool, and it's an important thing. Liftgate yeah. service, you need it. That's a luxury we take for granted working here. I mean, there's a good half dozen guys who have shops and woodwork, so it's pretty easy if you're getting a new piece of equipment or moving something to get a guy or two over to give you a hand. But before coming here, I was one of the few people I knew that that woodworked. So that whole notion that you've got this support group of people who can help you change a joiner or planer knife or something like that, or you know, even replace the belts on a table saw, um, it's a daunting prospect. So this thing is kind of cool. And I think, um, you know, that's probably not a bad thing. Not a bad reason to try to join a guild or a woodworking yeah. group is just to, you know, get yourself in touch with folks who probably know as a group a lot more than than any single person could know about all the stuff that you got to know just to do good work and make it fun. Yeah, and I think, I think um, one of the important things to remember is if you're setting up shop, if you're considering these heavy machines is to, you know, plan ahead because they're not easy to move if you, if you, unless they have a mobile base on them. So, you know, plan around that heaviness, you know, like make a permanent spot and have a plan for where things are going to go so you don't have to continue to move the, the heavy items like a big table saw. It's amazing, though, what you can do with a three, two or three guys and just sort of shimmying the thing across the floor. <laughs> you can travel miles that way if yeah. you're determined. Yeah. And beer. You know, yeah. And beer. All right. Well, that's it for the questions. Um, let's. Uh, it's time to get an earful from our listeners. These comments come from our own website, and unfortunately, they're all about Ed. Uh. Michael Eck writes, Ed, first of all, best of luck to you as you move forward. I hope that the move is a positive one for you and your family. Second, a sincere thank you for what you have brought to fine woodworking. Perhaps the ones that should really be thanking you, however, are the folks at Lee Nielsen and Lee Valley. Without your podcast, they would not have so much of my hard-earned money. (laughs) You and, of course, Matt, Mike, Asa, and the others have prompted me to further pursue this great hobby. And for that, I am most grateful. 
Nature's Art writes, Ed, wow, you're blowing my mind. Of all the guys I would want to see you go, you aren't one of them. <laughs> I'm kidding. So what's the list? <laughs> Seriously, you guys do a great job together, but it won't be the same without you. Best of luck. Will you be making a guest appearance? I have uh, one more letter to add to that. It came from my buddy, Sean, who wrote a very considered and thoughtful and somewhat lengthy letter strategizing how we could keep Ed on the podcast. Mm -hmm. Various things about working. Perhaps he could come after hours or on weekends and, and basically pretty much had it figured out how we can keep Ed going strong with us. But unfortunately, we haven't been able to figure that one out yet. Not yet. And, and the good thing is we don't have a dress code. Um, <laughs> like his new job. Yes. <laughs> Ed was amazing, and I'm sure we all can't thank him enough for everything he did, not just on the podcast, but um, working so tirelessly on the web and staying in touch with our readers. And, and to be honest, you know, I, I was desperate this morning trying to put this uh, script together. And, um, you know, Ed has his beautiful layout, and I couldn't find the electronic version. So I was like sweating bullets until, uh, you know, our editorial assistant emailed it to me. <laughs> um, so let's continue. Todd Shilbrights, thanks, Ed, for starting this great addition to the fine woodworking experience. I've listened to every episode and have enjoyed every one. You have definitely earned that sweet five star rating. I hope you get called back occasionally for a guest spot to keep Matt in check. <laughs> Stay <Yes>. sharp. <laughs> Now, finally, Ed Pernick himself chimed in, and this is what Ed said. He says, hi, everyone. Thank you so much for your kind remarks. I do hope to be able to appear on finewoodworking.com in some way in the future. Maybe it'll be on the weekend. Um, <laughs> cheers, Ed. But, uh, yeah, it, we have to give a lot of props to Ed. He, he worked hard at developing this, this podcast and, and uh, making it the special thing that it is. So... Um, I think that'll do it for this week. Shop Talk Live will be on again in two weeks on October 23rd. And in the meantime, let us know what you think by leaving a comment on iTunes. And please, please click that five-star rating. Don't forget to send your questions and comments into Shop Talk Live at Taunton.com. Is it Shop Talk Live or just Shop Talk? Oh, good catch. Shop Talk at Taunton.com. Thank you. Um, you can catch the podcast via iTunes, stream it on your computer at www.shoptalk.blog. <laughs> Let me try that again. Easy for you to say. www.shoptalklive.com or catch us on iHeartRadio. Thanks for listening. Be safe and have fun in the shop. Until next time, we'll see you on the road. We almost had a moment of silence there for beer, which was really nice. Yeah, I, yeah, I know. We all got sort of distracted and our yeah, eyes glazed over. Microbrew. Frothy cold one. Yeah.